Hello everyone, my name is Craig Sims. Welcome back to Searching for America. Today I'm going to be talking to someone who's experienced some, something in life that most people have not. You know, this show is about current events, it's about the world and what's going on around us and how the bigger world affects our personal lives. But also within our personal life, there's things that we experience that are struggles. Most people have experienced setbacks, have had regrets in their lives, things that they would like to begin over again. But very few people, few people have experienced the dark side of life, such as my guest today. I'm talking about drugs and prison. But he has overcome that life and he is a shining example of how to come out of the darkness and today he's living in the light. And he's here to share his experience today. His name is Chad Morgan, and he, his life is one of deliverance and also overcoming the darkness. Chad, how you doing today? I'm doing great. How about yourself? <laughs> I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I, I, I met Chad in a program called Toastmasters, something that we'll get into later. But I want to sure. talk to him about, let's start at the beginning. Okay. Let's talk about, uh, where did you grow up? Well, I was born in... Chattanooga, Tennessee. <laughs> and my dad, he uh, he got on with Home Depot right when Home Depot was kind of starting, mm -hmm. and so they were out east in Atlanta. And so as he started getting promoting, they were building more stores, you know, out west. So we eventually moved to Louisiana and then Sugarland, Texas. But by the time I was seven, I was in California, Southern California, Laguna Hills, and that's kind of where I grew up till you know I stayed there till I was twenty years old. So how was Laguna Hills? How was it growing up there? It was great for a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you had the beach a few miles away. You had mm -hmm. there was tons of hills. It's not like Texas where everything's flat. Mm -hmm. So skateboarding and rollerblading and all mm -hmm. that was big back then. So it was mm -hmm. fun going down the hills, but it was horrible mm -hmm. having to go back up those hills. Mm -hmm. But the sunshine all the time, the great weather, it was just it was perfect for a kid to be outdoors because there wasn't, you know, there was video games, but not like it was to, like today where people are indoors all the mm -hmm. time. So I enjoyed it. Exactly. Now, I grew up in California, too, so I know about that great weather. I know about the beach as well. Were you at the beach all the time? Did you, did this uh, take up most of your life? No, I really wasn't at the beach a lot until the high school years, mm -hmm. until people, friends had cars. Till I had cars and things like that. Before that, you know, you'd have to go with the friends' parents or with our parents or something like that. So as soon as we got around people, my older brother, he's two years older, he had a car before me. Mm -hmm. We were at the beach a whole lot more. You know, I love the beach. I love the water in general. The weather is amazing. And so your brother, now what was, what kind of influence was your brother in your life? What, what, your, what was your relationship with your brother like? Well, early on... He's kind of the one that got me involved into drugs. Mm -hmm. You know, we were we were close, but I really, really looked up to him. Mm -hmm. I looked up to him, and I wanted to be him. Mm -hmm. You know, because do you want me to get into what drew me into that lifestyle? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. See, my brother. When I was a little kid, I, I looked up to him a lot because my brother was six foot tall by the time he was in fifth, sixth grade. Mm -hmm. He had the all-star athletic ability. 
he could pick up musical instruments and just play them. I felt like he had everything that the world wanted out of somebody. Mm -hmm. And I, I just even remember as a little kid just looking at myself thinking, why aren't I all those things? Mm -hmm. You know, I, did, I felt worthless. I was smart. You know, I was good in school. I was a nerd. Mm -hmm. Basically, I was just a nerd. I was average in sports, things like that. And so when my brother offered me drugs, you know, I didn't think twice about it. Mm -hmm. All I thought about was if this can make me a little bit like him, I'm going to do it. Now, did you see the drugs at first? Was this something that you saw early on or, or did you, was this a, some type of discovery? Early on, I think the first first drug I did that my brother got me to do was to huff Freon. Mm. Freon is what you get out of your air conditioner. Mm. And I had never seen them really before. I kind of, I knew my brother was kind of like selling weed and doing things like that. Mm -hmm. But you know, I was a little kid, I was oblivious to all this. Mm -hmm. And so one day my brother told me, you know, huff this bag of Freon. He said, my, my, my biology teacher, whoever, science teacher, told me that it's good for you. Mm. And I didn't question. I sat there and I huffed that Freon. This stuff's mm. freezing your lungs and you're looped out and everything. And so from there, I got all, like, all the neighborhood kids huffing Freon. I was like, hey man, this stuff's good for you. Mm. <laughs> so that's how much I looked up to him. And really the drug world in general, I was mm. oblivious. My brother was a troublemaker. He was the one hanging out with gang and doing things like that. And that wasn't me. So it, mm -hmm. I was kind of blindsided and ignorant. <laughs> About how old were you around this time, like your first experience of drugs? Fifth, sixth grade. Okay. Okay. About uh, nine or ten? I'm, I'm not... uh, probably ten, eleven years old. Okay. And before that experience, you didn't have the outside world. You didn't have any experience with drugs, and did you? Did you see drugs in the neighborhood? Was it the kind of neighborhood that you saw drugs in, or was it sort of not that kind of neighborhood? It wasn't that kind of neighborhood at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, we lived in a condo in Laguna Hills, and it wasn't a bad area. It was clean. Mm -hmm. There weren't really, you know, there was gangs on the outskirts mm -hmm. in different areas, but it was a nice neighborhood. It was not something, I didn't see drug deals. I didn't see people get shot. I mm -hmm. didn't see all the typical things you would think that come with drugs. And why do you think your brother was taking drugs at the time? That's a good question. I just think he wanted to take a, a different lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I think he, he, my brother was a jerk, and this is kind of how my parents put it. Mm -hmm. So you, they always used to tell me, you have such a good heart, you don't want to be like your brother. Mm -hmm. Your brother's a jerk. Yes, he has all this talent, all this ability, but he's not a good person. Mm -hmm. And I just think it was something that he had in his heart at his young age that he set his eyes on, something about getting in trouble and doing those things, maybe mm -hmm. pushing the envelope mm -hmm. attracted him in some sort of way, which to me it didn't. I wanted to play basketball, football, go, mm -hmm. you know, go skateboard and do the normal things, but mm -hmm. he was more drawn to that lifestyle. Maybe it was, I don't know where he really got that attitude from because our parents loved us the same. Mm -hmm. They taught us the same. Mm -hmm. They encouraged us. They did all that. He just went a different way earlier in life. So his relationship with your parents, it sounded like it was a little bit tense or strained. Did you, did you notice this tension between them or? Yeah, mm -hmm. I did. Um, um, what's the best thing I can say? 
as we get farther on the speech, I know this is a little farther on, mm-hmm. but oh, that's toward, okay. But we'll come back toward mm-hmm. my high school days when I was just a full-blown drug addict, a junkie, mm-hmm. a drunk, all these things. Mm-hmm. I remember my mom finally saying to me, "You become your brother," because mm-hmm. they all I talked to him. I told them, you know, I always I, why aren't I like him? Mm-hmm. And when I became a jerk, when I became off the wall, when I started getting in trouble, when I started doing all the things that he did, they finally said, you've become him. Mm-hmm. So they they painted that picture to me early. It's like, you don't want to live like he's living. So, so after you began taking drugs, it wasn't long after your... Was it a steady, uh, a steady sort of experience with drugs? Did you continue... Obviously, you, could, you continued on, but like when you... When you took those drugs, what, how did you feel on the inside? What did it do for you? I felt like I became everything that I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. You know, the Freon, it only lasts for about 30 seconds to a minute. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I didn't think about anything else. I didn't mm-hmm. think about who I thought I should be. Mm-hmm. You know, when you get into other drugs and things like that, all the cares, all the worries, all the insecurities, the fears, mm-hmm. all those things kind of disappeared. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, okay, this is how you're supposed to feel. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to feel secure. You're supposed to feel confident. You're not supposed to care about all these other things. And that's the big thing. When I did those, it just, it went away. So you had a, so there was something that was missing that you didn't have before that the drugs gave you. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And what other, other drugs, so you huff free on, and what other drugs did you eventually get into? Of course, the next one was weed, mm-hmm. just smoking weed mm-hmm. and things like that. I started smoking cigarettes, alcohol, mm-hmm. of course, and alcohol, alcohol is my biggest downfall of them all. Mm-hmm. Okay. Alcohol is my biggest downfall because I, I almost became an alcoholic instantly. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you want to talk about ultimate confidence. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> Once mm-hmm. you're drunk, you got that ultimate confidence and you feel like you can conquer the world. Mm-hmm. And you just, when you're young and your body can handle those things, you don't mm-hmm. really see the degrading effects of it right away. Mm-hmm. I went many, many years and nobody noticed. Mm-hmm. But my brother introduced me to all these things. And the first time I did meth, I was in detention at school. Mm-hmm. And my brother walked in the library and mm-hmm. he just told me, put your book up. Mm-hmm. I said, what? Put your book up. So I, I put my book up. And he dumped some meth on the table, racked out a line. Wow. So yeah, I'm going to snort this. Like, what is this? It's meth. So I snorted it up. Mm. And then I was wired up, you know. I was, uh, <laughs> I was getting up, walking around the library, looking at books. And the librarians, librarians yelling at me like, Chad, sit down. So I go and sit down. Then two seconds later, I'm back up, walking wow. around. So that was, that was my first introduction to something, mm-hmm. you know, as they say, hard. Right. Hard drug. Right. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really take off with that one too bad right away. Mm-hmm. Um, cocaine was the next big one that really sent me in the mm-hmm. downwards file. Mm-hmm. Now, so you were very good in school. You were a geek. You, were, you took to school very well. When did it start to affect? Did it, did it eventually start to affect your performance at school? Uh, your, did, it, did it affect your grades? Did it, how did it hit, did uh, drugs affect your school performance? Uh, it, it, it affected it from the fact that 
I stopped caring. Mm-hmm. And I would say, you know, late junior high, early high school, because mm-hmm. I was just in that zone of why should I care? Mm-hmm. Not that the intelligence maybe wasn't there, but the give a crap wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I didn't care anymore. But really, by 16, 17 years old, it, it was not only could you see it in my grades and my performance and things like that, but you could see it on me physically. Mm-hmm. I had lost a whole bunch of weight. I quit basketball, mm-hmm. you know, something I used to love and enjoy. Mm-hmm. And that's when it really started showing itself and manifesting itself that others could really see it. Mm-hmm. And I even had a, a girlfriend in high school that tried to get me to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I mean, all the way back then, I'm just thinking, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. I don't have a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm only yada yada years old. Mm-hmm. It's no big deal. I got plenty, plenty of time in my life. Mm-hmm. And they, when she went to get information on Alcoholics Anonymous, they were telling her to go to Al-Anon. I guess mm-hmm. that's what the, the partner is supposed to go to mm-hmm. right. that's dealing with an alcoholic or drug addict yeah. or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So people very early on in my life saw mm-hmm. these things, but I, I didn't see them as an issue. Right. And how was your relationship with this, with this girl? Did you guys uh, continue on after that? We're friends to this day. Okay. Um, well, I mean, we don't talk and things mm-hmm. like that, but when I went to California maybe four years ago for a friend's funeral, mm-hmm. I saw her there. Of course, mm-hmm. we were on social media, things like that. Um, it it was it was bad. <laughs> it was like the, the high school drama. Right, right. You know what I mean? Because you know I was, I was level headed somewhat for a while, mm-hmm. but toward the end there, when I just went off the wall, okay. you know, it, it hurt her pretty bad, and okay. she went ballistic, and mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but but besides all that, you know, we're we're past all that. Okay. And your parents, tell me this about your parents. I know you said your dad was a he worked in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and tell me about your parents. Well, my mom graduated from the University of Georgia. Mm-hmm. She got a, had a teaching degree in English. Mm-hmm. So I grew up with an English teacher mom that was all, always correcting my grammar. <laughs> <laughs> Did she comment the number of times you said, um, um? <laughs> you had, already you were uh, experiencing some... Yeah, kind of like that because she was she would pull up a if she was reading an article or something yeah. she'd go read this paragraph and tell me what's wrong with it. Wow, you know. So I had my eyes and when to say I and me and you know all those yes. little things that gritty. I had those things down because she implanted uh-huh. that in me at a young age. Mm-hmm. My dad graduated. Um, actually, don't know where he graduated from, <laughs> but he uh, it wasn't a degree. And like business management and stuff, what he got into. Mm-hmm. So he was like a youth pastor for a while and doing different things. He's a musician. So okay. my dad's side of the family is musical. Mm-hmm. His mom was a great pianist, mm-hmm. very well known in North Carolina and mm-hmm. all that. Wow. So that's kind of where my brother got his musical abilities from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he like I said, he got on... Pretty early with Home Depot. Okay. Home Depot started, I believe, out of Atlanta. Because we had moved from Chattanooga to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And what was his position at uh, Home Depot? Early days when I was really young, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like when he first started. Mm-hmm. But I know as 
as he got started moving when he went to Louisiana, mm-hmm. you know, store manager mm-hmm. and things like that. And then he eventually moved to general manager, and mm-hmm. buyer, things like that. Okay. But I remember, because, you know, I had great examples as parents because they always mm-hmm. pushed me toward Christ. Okay. They always pushed me toward Christ. And I saw my dad, and he would always tell me the degree that I got in college, mm-hmm. the job that I have now, the degree that I got has nothing to do with what I'm doing. And mm-hmm. this was all God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Right, right. So you were led by God for that position, not, not, your, not your preparation before that in school. Right. And did you, did you know in high school what you wanted to be? I mean, let's say, did you have, like, did you have a moment where you said, I want to be this, or I'm going to do that? Or did you have any future plans? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I was okay. far gone. Yeah, I I did start a college, city college at Santa Barbara, mm-hmm. but I didn't, I think I went to class twice, all I did was party the whole time, mm-hmm. and I didn't do anything. I had no idea, no direction, no mm-hmm. anything whatsoever. It was mm-hmm. just, I want to get high, I want to mm-hmm. drunk, get drunk, I want to party, and we'll figure it out later. It was always figured out later. So you were very heavily addicted by the time you reached high school. You had already experienced some of the high, some some of the really serious drugs. You started off huffing. You got into cocaine, weed, and meth. Meth is is an incredibly addicting drug. I mean, it it takes people by storm. Um, it's amazing that you were able to get out of the grip of that. Uh, now. It, was there ever a time when you were young when you had any thoughts at all about what you might want to do? Like sometimes when you're a little kid, I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I don't know, Superman or whatever. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Because when, when you asked the other question, I was kind of trying to think back in my mind to what mm-hmm. was I inspired to be at any point. And I, I mm-hmm. honestly... There might have been something at some point, right. but I honestly don't remember it. Mm-hmm. It might have been something nerdy to mm-hmm. do with math, or right, right, right. <laughs> or right. I probably wanted to be a professional basketball player. Okay, well, that's a typical. That is a de- number one of the number one things a kid want to be: professional basketball player, football player. Or heavyweight champion of the world. That's that's high on the list. Yeah, see, because I used to play all the time, <laughs> and I. Uh, because you remember the phrase, white men can't jump? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, they, they made a movie about it. <laughs> right. Well, I was five foot nine when I started high school, and I didn't grow anymore. Uh-huh. But I could dunk a basketball. Wow. My problem was that I got small hands, and it was hard to palm the ball. Yes. So every once in a while, I could get up there and get mm, it okay. in there. I could, mm-hmm. I could jump. Right. You know, I had some ability. I had that mm-hmm. athletic ability, but I was... Kind of like earlier in my mm-hmm. year, looking up my brother, I always thought that I wasn't good enough. Yes. And I, I always kind of had that perfectionism in mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. If I can't be perfect at it and be the best, I don't want to do it. Did you have any brothers, uh, uh, sisters at all? No. So it was just you and your brother? That's it. What is this feeling of not um, being enough? You, your father w- was pushing you towards Christ. Your mother and father did very well financially. It seemed like they really wanted, they instilled a lot in you in the way of, of doing the right thing. What do you think that feeling came from? That's, you got me on that mm-hmm. one. Yeah. I, really, I really couldn't 
tell you, and maybe, you know, when, when earlier in my younger years, well, it is even because I saw my parents come from nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, they were poor. They had right. to sell off. My dad had to sell guitars. He had to sell his class ring from college. Mm-hmm. They came from nothing. So I had the great example of seeing people mm-hmm. persevere and work hard and put their nose down right. and make it. Mm-hmm. So maybe, and even in my younger years, we weren't rich. We were living in a condo. Mm-hmm. We weren't, we were, they were never rich, but we're well off. And maybe it was because I had so much comfort. Mm-hmm. Maybe I didn't have to worry about anybody coming outside my house and shooting it up. Or there weren't drug dealers on the street. Or maybe I just had so much comfort. But I think part of it is that I saw the world. I saw the world and the world looked fun. Which, by the world, I mean not biblically, you know. By the world, how they are doing things. How they're partying. How Mm -hmm. they're having fun. Mm -hmm. You know, the partying, the women, the things, this and that. Mm -hmm. And maybe just things that entice me and look good to me. Right, right. Maybe because even though I didn't have that example in my household, I saw it through other means and said, hey, that's kind of what I want to achieve. And I saw my brother going out there and doing it, Mm -hmm. causing chaos and partying and doing all this and that. And he just seemed to be living life up and enjoying himself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'm thinking maybe that's where it it came from Mm -hmm. because it definitely wasn't from them. Right. Yeah. I can relate to the, the the big brother thing. I had a big brother. Even though I had sisters, I had a big brother too. And he would take me everywhere he went. I'm just realizing today is because... I'm just realizing today it's probably because my mother and father said, take him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it, I'm just realizing as an adult that I probably said, oh my God, I got to take my brother wherever I go. And I can say that my life is very much affected by by the experience my brother showed me as a child, you know, as, as a little boy. He'd take me everywhere, and those that stays with me today, so definitely I can relate to that, that thing. He's the closest authority figure, and, and you have a relationship you don't have with your parents, you know, that kind of relationship, you know, where right. you can just, you don't have to, you know, uh, do everything right. So did your brother, with all of this musical talent and ability, did he pursue anything in the field of music, or what was his pursuits? Yeah, he uh, he was in, in several bands. He was in bands all through mm-hmm. high school, and I know after high school he was in other bands that made CDs and mm-hmm. things like that. And he, they would always play at bars, you know. He'd mm-hmm. always yeah. get me in. I just yeah. like carry a, <laughs> carry a speaker or something. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> walk in. <laughs> So we got to saw see a lot of cool bands, a lot of because yeah. we listened to a lot of punk rock in California. Okay, yes. it was hip hop and punk rock. Mm, okay, yes, you know? yes, <laughs> yes. And that was back in the you know Hootie and Blowfish days too. Okay, yes, <laughs> yes. But he 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 pursued it a lot, and he still plays to this day. He's a great musician. He's he's written songs, and I know he's sold one song to a guy named Michael Graves. Mm-hmm. who used to be the lead singer of the Misfits. Okay. Misfits is a big punk rock band. They're not really yeah. mainstream. Right, right. So he, he's, he's done some things, and he's still extremely talented. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think I have that musical gene. Okay. Because, you know, music makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
I could keep a beat, I could keep rhythm mm -hmm. and all that. I just never, the interest was never there. To pursue it in a, in a, in, in a career way. Are you, or do you well, mean like, to, or to go further down that? Mm -hmm. Well, not even a career way, just to even in my leisure time, just something okay. like a hobby even. I see. You know, I got one of my dad's expensive guitars sitting in my closet right now. Mm. I've had it for years, and right. I haven't touched it. Okay. Because okay. <laughs> it's right. there. The mm -hmm. interest isn't there. You know? Right. But the ability, but the kind of like the raw ability is there? I, I think mm -hmm. so, because mm -hmm. I know it's in my blood, and right. I think I could do it if I wanted to, but, mm -hmm. you know, if I play some music or... Mm -hmm. Read some books. I'm, I'm right, right. The book reader. You get up to speed on that. <laughs> Jump right in there. Yes, yes. I, I, I hear you just saying, yeah, it's there. So what what led you from this point of taking drugs and sort of being consumed with drugs? What what led you to going to prison? Well, um, all my charges are drug-related or alcohol-related mm -hmm. or guns. So the, the first time I ever got arrested was a DWI mm -hmm. in Laguna Hills. I was going back home, and I ran a stop sign. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think I, I was 18 years old then. Okay. I was 18 years old. I could see my house. The cops stopped me. I could see my house. Mm -hmm. And I remember him saying, Sir, could you put your cigarette out? And I remember I threw it out the window and hit him. <laughs> Ooh, wow. Because I didn't take it out the window. Boy. <laughs> Man. But then that was the first time I went to Orange County Jail. Mm-hmm. And well, I only spent a night in there. Mm-hmm. they were, you know, drunk in public, DUI, stuff like that. Let's put you in the drunk tank. Mm -hmm. Sober up, kick you out the next day. And you'll see you in court later. And after that arrest for drunk driving at 18, did, did that... Sort of like, um, have any, what did that do to you? Um, did you, how did you feel about that? Or was that just not on your radar? It didn't do anything. Okay. It didn't do anything. I know I went to court and they suspended my license for a year. Stuff like that. That didn't stop me from driving. Mm -hmm. It didn't stop me from doing things like that. Mm -hmm. I think my parents took my, my keys away. Mm -hmm. But my dad had a couple cars and they'd be off at work or something. Mm -hmm. I'd grab the keys and I'd take his car out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and drinking still, you know? The, yes. The mentality didn't change. Nothing changed mm -hmm. at all. Maybe I felt kind of cool, you know? Right. I, I got locked up, bro. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was in right. jail for a night, bro. Yeah. You know how you're younger and you think yeah. of stupid things that make right. you look cool? Yes. No, it really didn't hamper anything. Okay. So it was just kind of like, kind of like, just an experience that didn't mean anything. Like, and then when you went to jail the next time, was it for longer? Or when was the first time you went in? It was serious. First time. So in 2000, dates may be wrong, but sometime around mm -hmm. 2001, mm -hmm. I was super strung out on all kinds of things and just wasting away, doing really bad. And someone, you know, had heard I was shooting a bunch of dope and this and called the cops to do a welfare check or something like that mm -hmm. and they came in and they they found some coke and things like that mm -hmm. so I went to jail for a minute and I took probation mm -hmm. the Harris County Jail I was in Texas by this time mm -hmm. and 
I got out, but then I fled probation and went to Georgia. Now, why did you leave for, for, for probation? Did you, what made you uh, leave? And go to Georgia? Yeah. Just because I knew I, all the things they were asking me to do, I wasn't willing to do. Okay. All the community service and staying mm -hmm. clean. And mm -hmm. I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. Because, you know, if I look back at it now, I would have just taken whatever little time they were going to give me and just done that and got out. But mm -hmm. I didn't have the wisdom or the knowledge back then. I was thinking, mm -hmm. oh, man, mm -hmm. I'm sitting in this jail. I just want out. Because mm -hmm. I was still, you know, craving all the drugs and everything. I really hadn't detoxed. Mm -hmm. I think I was in there for a week that time. Mm -hmm. But that's when I got out. So I shot to Georgia. Lived in Douglasville, Georgia. What was the worst part of the things that they were asking you? Was it the, was, what was the worst part? You were saying community service, they cleaned, it was some certain condition. What was the one thing that, that the bottom line that got to you? Probably just staying clean, having mm -hmm. to take drug tests, having to report in. Mm -hmm. um, basically having someone tell me what I can and can't do. Mm -hmm. I'm still in that rebellious stage and it's like, no, I'm, I'm just not going to deal with that right now. I'm not ready, mm -hmm. to, right. ready to stop. Right. So that's when, so in Georgia is when I first, you know, got seriously arrested. Mm -hmm. So I know I've, you've probably heard this story in Toastmaster before. Oh, we uh, <laughs> <laughs> pretend like we never talked. I want you to pretend like because uh, there's a lot of people who are going to be listening to this, and this is people are going to hear people who have taken drugs who may be experiencing um, being in that state of you know in the grips of drugs. They're going to hear this, so <laughs> maybe you know they may hear something they can relate to. Right, mm -hmm. right. So I was. Living in Douglasville, Georgia, and I had been up for a couple weeks, mm -hmm. a couple weeks on on various drugs, and you know if you're up for a few days at a time, you start getting kind of mm -hmm. tired and not really know what's going on. But you're up for weeks at a time and just kind of lose touch with the reality. Yes, and you know I was in this house, two story house. And I was hearing people run past me and doors slam mm. and nobody was there. Nothing was there. Nothing wow. was real. Mm -hmm. And I was freaking out. And, mm -hmm. you know, I had a gun. I was walking around the house with a gun trying to find people that weren't even there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely wow. losing wow. my mind. Mm -hmm. And somehow I ended up managing to call the police on myself. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that was stupid and brilliant. That was like, wow. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. But then the, the cop showed up at the door, and I answered the door with the gun. Mm. <laughs> I had a gun there. And it just didn't even occur to me. So right then, I got arrested for convicted felon with a firearm. Mm -hmm. And I got picked up on my warrant from Texas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I got taken to the Douglas County Jail. And I don't know what parts of this you want me to go into or not. But... As much as you're willing to, what you you're comfortable with? Okay. Well, this I like to tell this part of the story because this is the first time that mm -hmm. other people that were around me were pointing me toward Christ. Mm -hmm. This is the first time that I can remember, besides my parents or you know mm -hmm. people like that. But everywhere I went, you know, whether it was my cellies mm -hmm. or a 
a guard or whoever it was, they were all telling mm-hmm. me that I need to give my life to Christ, that Christ can turn my life around. Were they saying this directly, or did you, were they hinting at it, or? Pretty directly. Okay. Pretty directly. And, you know, people would invite me, invite me into their cells for mm-hmm. Bible studies and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I even went to a Catholic service. Mm-hmm. With a guy, <laughs> you know, the Catholic service kind of freaked me out a little bit. Really? <laughs> it, it was different. It's something I'd never experienced before. It's like, can you put me back in my cell, please? <laughs> and I don't say that to, to, to mean anybody Catholic, but it was yeah, just yeah. something I had never experienced or seen before. It's like, I just want to go back in my cell. <laughs> so this was different. Your, your, your dad and your mom had talked to you about Christ early in your life, but this, but as the Catholic uh, service was a different experience? Or? It was. Mm-hmm. It was just the way they did things, I guess. Mm-hmm. It was just, just very odd, because I knew the Bible. Mm-hmm. I knew who Christ was. I didn't know mm-hmm. him personally. I knew who he was. I knew how I was raised and grew up. Mm-hmm. It was just very contrary to a lot of the things I was taught mm-hmm. okay. growing up. You know, but... I ended up, you know, going before the judge, and the judge himself, you know, said, we're, uh, I can't remember exactly, but basically, I remember her saying that you're going to go to prison in Texas, so Mm -hmm. they just gave me the few months that I was there, I think I was there three or four months, Mm -hmm. time served. And shipped me off to Texas. So I was kind of blessed in that regard because I have a convicted felon with a firearm in Georgia. And basically because she's thinking, okay, you're going to go to prison in Texas. So did, did you escape a longer sentence in Georgia? I mean, what would have been the like outcome? It. Okay. I feel like it. Mm-hmm. I mean, still, first time convicted felon with a firearm might be one, two, three, four years. Okay. Would have been something severe and I don't remember exactly the whole mm-hmm. right. court thing and everything that was said and done but I remember her saying something about you know you're going to go to prison in Texas mm-hmm. and I got I got a very light sentence so you had people talk to you your cellies of uh, uh, guards talk telling you about Jesus pointing you to, to Jesus do you feel that this decision on the judge's part was a direct was that was that more of the same thing or? Um, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I know I can look back at it now mm-hmm. and see the blessing of it. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. She wasn't really the judge herself. Wasn't really talking about Christ. Right. Um, it was more so just the inmates, the guards, kind of everywhere I went right. besides besides right. the judge, but. It was. I can look back now and see what a blessing that was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you escaped a serious time in Georgia. You came to Texas, and what happened then? So I came to Texas, and the same thing occurred. Mm-hmm. So you know, from my story before, the guard that came and picked me up from Texas, mm-hmm. that flew me back. I got shipped back on a, I think it was a Delta. You know. Okay. <laughs> got paraded down the middle of the airport in shackles. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, with arm arm guard and everything. My goodness. And now, what was that? Tell me, what, what what was that feeling like? What was that feeling like? It, it was it was strange because 
people, everybody's staring at you. You just—it's obviously you're walking with an armed guard, and it's obviously got shackles. They try to push my mm-hmm. long sleeves over the cuffs and everything, but you're mm-hmm. you're shuffling your feet. You're walking like a duck, you know. Right, walking a little <laughs> bit different than everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> now, did you, can you attach an emotion to that? Was there? Did you have a feeling of shame? Was it just embarrassment, or did you? Was it just nothing? Or or? Well, I remember specifically. I was having fun with it. Okay. I was thinking, okay, I'm not behind bars. I'm free from this moment. I'm having okay. fun. And I remember right before I was going to get on a plane, I saw this lady look up at me with these scared eyes and kind of pulled her kid a little closer mm, really? when they realized that I was getting on their plane. Okay, yes. <laughs> so I kind of went like, ah, Ooh, kind of wow. like making faces, just kind of man, just having fun with it Wow. Okay. while I could. But I didn't really feel shame. I think I was still in that ignorant place where mm-hmm. where I felt cool okay. the stupidity of that mm-hmm. <laughs> and how, how much time how much time had you been in jail at that point I think three or four months three or four months before going to jail did you and when you knew you were going to go to jail did you have any was there any fear about that did you did you imagine what it would be like in jail or prison yeah I mean so far every time that I had gone to jail, mm-hmm. I was high as a kite. Okay. So it really didn't set in until mm-hmm. I came down. Okay. I came off of that. Mm-hmm. And then then more of the thoughts started going through my head. Okay. okay. So what's going on? Right. You know, who do I need to stick mm-hmm. close to? Okay. What do I need to do? You mm-hmm. know, that I was completely new to this. I mean, you right. get thrown into this and you see the drugs, you see the fights, you see the gangs, you mm-hmm. see all these different things so it, it it definitely the mind starts rolling okay like what's coming next trying to learn the ropes trying mm-hmm. to watch whatever the people do because there's there's internal rules a lot sometimes that going around even how it comes down to when to use the bathroom and okay. stuff like that if you're mm-hmm. in a cell with four guys mm-hmm. you don't want someone going number two right. while the door's shut and you right. know they just Things yeah. like that, trying to learn the ropes. Okay. Because, you know, you can piss some people off pretty quick. Okay. Yes, <laughs> yes. Now, there's probably a lot of things that it, people experience in prison that other people who've never been to prison don't know about, even though they've seen shows. Like, is there something yeah. that people on the outside don't realize? <laughs> a lot, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, how real it is. Uh-huh. How real it is. I mean... I was in there for a gun. One of my cellies, 20 years old, had raped a 70-year-old woman. Wow. You're sitting across from people who kill for them, mm-hmm. who kill and have no remorse, no regret, uh-huh. no anything like that. Just how real it is. You can watch the cops. Mm-hmm. You can watch these things. But mm-hmm. And, you know, I... Like, I lived a lot of that lifestyle before jail, being, mm-hmm. you know, I had been to plenty of hoods and running that kind of life and living right. stupidly, so I, I had seen plenty of things, right. but then you're, you're trapped in there mm-hmm. with everybody of every walk of life, mm-hmm. and things get real, mm-hmm. real quick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you had to figure out, like you said, who to talk to, who not to talk to, kind of like learn these things. Did any? Did you have anyone tell you? Like, did you 
get close with anyone who sort of like guide guide you in that field, or was it just like learn real quick? I did, I did. He was this uh, he was this black guy mm-hmm. from New York. New York. <laughs> I don't I don't remember his real name. Yeah. But I would call him Joe. Joe. Just because his New York accent and everybody, he would always call everybody else, Joe. Hey, Joe, hey, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I would always call him Joe. And he uh, he was a lifelong criminal. Uh-huh. He'd been arrested all over. He had he was in there for bank robbery. Okay. He was going back to prison for a long time. Mm-hmm. He was always, he didn't know if he'd ever get out again just because mm-hmm. he had so many mm-hmm. strikes against him. Mm-hmm. And he kind of, he kind of took me under his wing which you know you see a lot of the shows mm-hmm. and i've had plenty of friends go to prison in california mm-hmm. where racially mm-hmm. you don't cross those lines in Cal- california California's super cigarette really and yeah so different in california is different in the prison than other places from from what i've been told of friends and what i've seen mm-hmm. on shows i mean mm-hmm. the hispanics mm-hmm. separate whites separate you don't you don't right. go across color lines right and so that was that was kind of, mm-hmm. I, was, I guess I had that imagery in my head that this is how it's going to be. Yes. But it, it wasn't. This guy kind of took me under his wing, showed mm-hmm. me some things, mm-hmm. um, just kind of kept me in line. Okay. And I, and the other guy was the Catholic guy. The Catholic guy, okay. Well, see, the, I got close to the Catholic guy because he, he had all the cigarettes. Okay. <laughs> of course, it makes sense. <laughs> but he was a good dude. He was a good dude. He kind of, yeah. I think he kind of had the Rastafarian-ish to really? him. Really? Because okay. he liked to smoke weed, but he was devoted to God. You'd mm-hmm. always see him walking around and praying. But he had the cigarettes, he had the weed. A Catholic Rastafarian, <laughs> okay. That's well, a, well, he didn't have the dreads and right, stuff. Right, right, he just had the vibe. Maybe the vibe, the <laughs> hippie vibe, you know? But he was, he right. was a good dude. And he would, because I remember that jail, they would only serve you breakfast and dinner. And little wow. scrawny meals. There was no lunch. And I didn't have anybody put money on my books. I didn't have well, a commissary. Yeah. He would shoot me soups and things like that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, they, they taught me, they'd be wary of people giving you free stuff, okay. that they're going to expect something back from you. Right. You okay. know, but I kind of right. earned trust with them. I, you know, I kind of started to trust these guys mm-hmm. as they are guiding me, because they, they would help me out and never ask me for a thing in return. Mm-hmm. I think they were just saying, this little white kid needs help. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. So there was something in you that they saw that they con- kind of connected with. Yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah. So it, yes. was, it was interesting. <laughs> I've watched a lot of prison shows, and I try to think about what it must be like, and I try to rack my head with all kinds of scenarios, but it, being in there and not being able to leave is probably the most, you know, the heaviest thing you can experience. Yeah, and depending on the jail... Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you don't even good to go outside. Right. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of the times, I don't think this one I got to go outside whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of times they'll take you to a, a room, maybe where you can shoot basketball or mm-hmm. play handball or things like that. Mm-hmm. I don't remember specifically at this jail what it was like or if I, if I even went. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but... Um, 
Yeah, so got on that plane. I ended up falling asleep on the plane. That 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 guard that came and picked me up even mm. gave me a Christian book for me to read really? on the plane ride back, mm. and I was mm-hmm. like, ah. "Wow, I went I went to sleep." Do you think that was your experience of people? You you're in prison. You're with people who are rapists and killers, and people who've done all kind of things. Do you think? This experience of receiving, you know, guidance towards Christ or being led, is that, is that not typical, but does it happen often or? It does. Mm-hmm. It happens, it happens a lot. Because um, I've personally experienced it myself where, mm-hmm. where I've, I've tried to go the Christian route. Mm-hmm. Um, but as soon as those doors open, mm-hmm. the Bible went out the window. Okay. People, people try to seek that comfort while they're in there. Uh-huh. But a lot of us would have reservations, you know, mm-hmm. of what we still plan to do. We could never fully let go. We're just maybe trying to seek some comfort or mm-hmm. something in the meantime. Is it the experience, is it the pressure of having to behave in a certain way for survival purpose? Or, I mean, it, why would you, you know, in one moment seek it and then when the doors open it all go out the window what is that about that's a good question mm-hmm. that's a like I was saying you're probably seeking some kind of of comfort while you're there mm-hmm. some kind of peace I know, I know a lot of people turn to God because they want the judge to give them a less sentence okay. you know right. Uh, right. you know okay mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sitting on 10 years can you God, can you come through for me this time? Yeah. So yeah. maybe hope. I guess right, maybe right. going to the Bible, going to religion, going to those things mm-hmm. maybe gives you a glimmer of hope. Because mm-hmm. I think everybody deep, deep down inside doesn't ever want to come back. That doesn't want to come back? To oh, jail back or prison. To prison. Or, right, right. Right. Because I know there was always that thing inside of me. It's like, I don't want to ever come back here. But there was yeah. still that voice in my head saying you can do it differently this time. Do what differently? Do life differently. Best example, you ever heard an alcoholic say, Mm -hmm. well, I'm not going to drink hard liquor anymore, I'm just going to drink beer. Right, (laughs) right, right. Okay, I'm I'm, I'm not going to do cocaine, Mm -hmm. I'm just going to maybe do a little bit of heroin, Mm -hmm. some downers, Mm -hmm. just drink a little bit. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to do things differently. Mm-hmm. Where I can stay in my right mind, mm-hmm. and hopefully this time, you know, we, I know for myself, I mapped out plans. Like, mm-hmm. okay, these are the things that I'm gonna do, mm-hmm. and hopefully something's gonna be different this time. So they're looking. They don't want to really stop. They're looking for a way to manage it versus stop altogether. Right. Mm-hmm. How can I keep having fun, mm-hmm. so called in quotes, fun, okay. Okay. and not come back? To this place now that place that you're at you it, it you know this place that you're at this prison this is before you, drugs were cool you were doing it you were you're out of your mind it's a great place to be when you're out of your mind you're in oblivion you, you you're kind of in the chill zone where you're in a place where everybody else is to kind of have that same attitude that same belief why is prison uh, such a I, I, this is a stupid question why is prison such a bad place if you're with your people <laughs> yeah. freedom's gone freedom's gone yeah. the freedom to 
eat when you want, mm-hmm. to go outside when you want, mm-hmm. you know, cause chaos when you want. You can you can still cause chaos in jail, and it happens all around you all the time. Right, right. And you know the crime doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. The drugs pour in there. Right. The game's still going. All of that's going. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a bunch of dudes. Mm-hmm. It's dirty. Right. It's gross. Right. You know, you're on someone else's schedule. You yes. got if you have a job, you get up when they tell you to go. Mm-hmm. You stop when they tell you to. Mm-hmm. You're sick. Hey, if they tell you to get up and come, you come. I mean, there's right. there's there's no calling in. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, um, it's it's, and a lot of people are are fake in there. Fake. What do you mean, fake? You know, you might build some camaraderie with people and this and that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, once people hit those doors, mm-hmm. you know, you hear a lot of people say, dude, I'm going to write you, I'm going to do yeah. all this, I'm going to mm-hmm. put money on your book. Yeah. You never hear from them again once they hit that door. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's because right. they're out there, they're living their life. Right. Very few people are ever going to actually stay right. with you. So it was a feeling that only came because you were in this situation. Right. It wasn't something, that, a real connection. A lot of people you normally would never hang out with. <laughs> right, right. Now it 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 sound it seems like you were able to sort of navigate this thing where you didn't become a victim of something. I know that prison. I've I've heard. In some I've heard in some cases where people go to prison, mm-hmm. and when they're in there, it it it, they're not able to. How do I say this? They they crumble under the pressure, and and they get sort of like, I don't know, for like swallowed up. They they get. They can't um, protect themselves or stand up for themselves in prison. That sounds like that did not happen to you. No, I, mm-hmm. I honestly really didn't have an issue with that whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been hit in the head plenty of times. Yeah. <laughs> over my mm-hmm. lifetime, so any kind of. Oh, not literally. <sighs> not in there. I, yeah. Not ever when I was locked up. Um. Uh-huh. Besides. You know, when I was in gangs and I would get jumped into gangs and stuff like that, okay. that was, okay, I was fighting my own so-called people. Uh-huh. But I didn't have, I had some, some run-ins with people, mm-hmm. but nothing that ever materialized with things. Okay. Some people scream a lot, do a lot of yelling, mm-hmm. trying to get attention and stuff yeah. like that. But I didn't, things like that didn't bother me. I was used okay. to those, that that kind of thing. Okay. So. I was, I struggled more with the the social part of it because when I would have stretches of sobriety mm-hmm. I didn't know how to be social apart from drugs and alcohol I would have social anxiety if I was getting moved to a different pod or if mm-hmm. I got moved to a different unit mm-hmm. or things like that mm-hmm. being around new people being around new environment that's what kind of really got my anxiety and everything riled up so did drugs give you well, we kind of started with the feeling that drug gave you when you were looking up to your brother being cool, but did drugs feel something that in you uh, give you a courage, or, or did it make you feel, did it relieve that anxiety? Big time. Okay. Big yeah. time. Well, mm-hmm. things, so when I would do meth and I would mm-hmm. do cocaine, those are uppers. Mm-hmm. And so I would become a paranoid, just like I called the cops on myself. I'd become right. out of my mind. Mm-hmm. So I would always need alcohol and benzodiazepines, mm-hmm. like Xanax, right. and things like that to yeah. chill me out. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when I first started doing cocaine and meth and things like that, I could, I could manage. 
I was having fun. I was happy. Mm-hmm. But then it, as it progressed, it just turned into this complete paranoia. That's it. <laughs> or is out of my mind so I'd always need those downers the heroin the mm-hmm. pills and things like that to kind of balance my brain out so mm-hmm. I was never doing one without the other okay and I could not drink and not do coke oh wow so that's what my why I was telling you my plans that I had in my head mm-hmm. that you know I'm just gonna drink this or that I can't drink alcohol mm-hmm. and not do cocaine okay. <laughs> right right so that, that was a thinking now when did the when did this voice in your head this all of these people planting the the seed of Christ. When did that when did that begin to sort of like get some traction with you? Well, so when I got to Houston, I got to Harris County after I was transferred mm-hmm. from from Georgia. Like I told you before, my the same thing kind of started happening. Everybody I would run to was mm-hmm. putting pushing me or telling me about Christ and mm-hmm. all this and that, and I I recognized it. Mm-hmm. I I recognized that these people were trying to help me mm-hmm. and I could see that and that they were they were genuine mm-hmm. whether or not they got out the door and went back to an old lifestyle or not at mm-hmm. that point in time mm-hmm. they were sincere about trying to help me and mm-hmm. I could realize that and I, I tried to an extent mm-hmm. and I because I, I knew how to talk the talk mm-hmm. talk the Christian walk I, right. could, I could fool anybody right this I grew up in it Mm-hmm. I could. What do you want to hear? I can tell you. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. even if it was like, hey, I'm, 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 my mentality. I didn't have money on my books, things like that. Right. What can I tell this guy? You know that he would want to hear that would, you know, right. give me some food. You know, you got some. So hey, brother, brother, Christ, right. here's some food. Yeah. Uh, it was kind of playing the game, mm-hmm. trying to manipulate to get what you need. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Because and and. and there was some sincerity in it because mm-hmm. you know, like I was saying I part of me just wanted to stop but ultimately all I wanted was to get out of those doors and go right. back to my lifestyle okay that's all my focus was on I think I was in Harris once I got to Texas I was locked up another seven or eight months okay and another cool thing happened while I was there I want to mm-hmm. include that's yes yeah. a new part of the story okay <laughs> so they they opened up a new jail in Harris County there's three big jails uh-huh. and so we were one of the first ones to get moved so they had me in some kind of program or something so mm-hmm. I got moved to the new building mm-hmm. so I was laying on my bunk and I don't know if you remember who Kim, King Kemeny that sounds yeah baseball Kim, player yes, for yes, Houston yes. Astros yes yes so he was going through a whole bunch of drug problems and he just got arrested wow. next thing I know he's walking into our dorm wow and he gets on the top bunk right next to me Man, right next to <laughs> King Kimenetti, and you shake this dude's hand, you can yeah. just tell he's strong as an ox, you know. Wow, he's and I, I used to watch baseball, I've watched this dude growing up. Wow, and he's sitting on the top bunk right next to me. And that's another thing that started going through my mind that this guy that's famous, that has all this money, that has everything that I think that I want, uh-huh. all the things that I think that will make me happy, yeah, and he's in the same place I am. Wow. <laughs> Same place I am. That, that so that helped that helped sort of like this that helped you was that the beginning of a of a of a of an opening or a change? Unfortunately, no. Okay. No, but but it it was eye opening. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, and it still is to this day because I can look back and I can see it. Mm-hmm. 
I can remember looking right in his eyes and shaking that dude's hand. Mm-hmm. Like, you are a multimillionaire, and yes. I have nothing to my name. Wow. And you are sleeping right next to me. Man, you're using is... the same toilet I'm using. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you're eating the same junky food that I'm eating. Wow. And there's nothing he could do but. That is, <laughs> is eye-opening. Is. <laughs> wow, man. No doubt. So this is almost a year you were in prison, right? I mean, yeah. from, from the beginning to the end, you were approaching a, a year. And did how much longer in prison did you stay for that? Or uh, No, I, I think I did, like I said, six, seven more months or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And from when I got from Georgia, and then I was released. Okay. And what happened at that point? Did you ever go back? Oh, yeah. I, uh... I went to Georgia. Went back to Georgia. You went back there <laughs> went back on to purpose, Georgia. or did they take you back? <laughs> <laughs> I went back on purpose because mm. um, I, I had a I had a choice, mm-hmm. and that's that's where I ended up going. I didn't stay there long because okay. I got there, mm-hmm. and I lived in this kind of like a it's kind of like an extended stay motel strip kind okay. of right. Yeah, I was I was working, but my brother was out there, mm-hmm. so I live very close to him. Okay. So I was working with him, mm-hmm. and so I was I was drinking. Mm-hmm. I started drinking again, and then everything else started started shooting up again. Okay. I, I ran in, you know, there were some other crack addicts mm-hmm. that lived in that complex, and okay. we started getting crack, smoke crack, doing all that, and I started just. Right off where I start, just down here, mm-hmm. just absolutely downhill. You went right back to where you had been right before back. it sort of like right t- took up where you left off. And when did you, did the voice of Christ really get to you? What, what was the day that really, that where you gave your life to Christ and there was no looking back? Okay, so let's say... July of 2011, mm-hmm. I was living up in Colorado. So I had gone from Georgia back to Texas. I had gone to Florida and been locked up in Florida. I had gotten out and I had moved mm-hmm. to Colorado to grow some weed. Mm-hmm. Someone wanted to grow weed and I said, all right, let's go. Shoot, mm-hmm. Move from Colorado, we're growing weed up in the mountains. And I had a warrant in Texas still. Mm-hmm for a felony DWI mm-hmm. and I eventually got picked up on that warrant mm-hmm. and I was I was drunk I was high I was out of my mind and mm-hmm. I remember the cops were going to arrest me and I took off running <laughs> and it was July but we were at 10,000 feet so there was snow there was snow on the ground and I remember yeah. I was just starting bucket it just running you know yeah. and I smoked the cop I wow, smoked okay. it, but yes. they, they got these things called trucks <laughs> <laughs> maybe a little faster yeah yeah they can make up for speed on that one. <laughs> oh, he pulled in front of me. And I'm like, All right. Oh, wow. Here I am. And actually, they put me in the jail, but then I started to detox off the alcohol. Mm-hmm. And detoxing off of alcohol is severe. Uh-huh. It's one of those things you can die from. I was right. hallucinating wow. and doing all this. They eventually mm-hmm. had to put me in the hospital mm-hmm. to help me come off of that. But I remember when I got back from the hospital, I said, God... I'm done. Mm-hmm. I'm finished. 
Mm. And it's the first time, you know, I could sit there and say, I'm done without there being other thoughts. Right. Well, there being, well, I'm done, but I need to get out and still try something else. Right. It was like I've tried everything along the way and nothing, mm-hmm. nothing worked. Mm-hmm. And I started reading my Bible in there. I started praying and I, mm-hmm. you know, and another buddy in, was actually locked up in there with me. Mm-hmm. The guy that I was running around with up there, he was locked up in there. And I remember you, he'd be taunting me like, why, why are you reading that Bible? Uh-huh. Why are you doing this and that? I said, man, I'm done, bro. Mm-hmm. done and the the uh, Texas cops obviously came mm-hmm. and picked me up okay. uh, I, didn't, I didn't get a plane ride this time you, get, you didn't get first class <laughs> no uh, <laughs> but they, it was an SUV was two cops there was two of them that came and picked me up and mm-hmm. they they drove me all the way to Bernie, Texas. Bernie. Mm-hmm. It's outside of San Antonio, so it's okay. kind of in the hill country. All right. Well, they took me all the way back there, and uh, I just, everything changed, man. Mm-hmm. Just everything changed. You know, I still smoked cigarettes. I mm-hmm. still did things like that. I was still struggling with some things. Right. Um, but I knew deep down in my heart that I couldn't live this way anymore. I came to that final vision that there's nothing I can do differently, mm-hmm. nothing I can alter, nothing I can finagle or manipulate mm-hmm. to try to make the outcome mm-hmm. any different. Right. And it took all those years and it took all that, it took all the pain, it took everything to get finally to that place. Mm-hmm. Um, I was sitting initially on a 10-year sentence. Mm-hmm. And I went to court several times. Mm-hmm. And eventually they came back and, you know, they said, we're offering you two, two years. Yeah. Two years instead of 10. Mm. And I jumped on that right away. And I, wow. I signed. Mm-hmm. I signed. Because there's nothing better you can do. That's the yeah. that's the shortest prison sentence you can get. It's right. two years. Right. You're gonna do some time, <laughs> but yeah, it's not gonna be right. right. Mm-hmm. Unless you're going to state jail. State jail is different. But mm-hmm. so I signed signed the two year. And about a month later, they picked me up and off I went to prison. Wow. And when you walked out after a couple of years, and you were exa- you had you were worn out like you just you made that decision. What did you do to, to um, sort of like, kind of reinforce or, or to continue moving in the same direction? Well, I, well, when I was in prison, I laid the foundation there. Oh. Things that I still do to this day. Okay. That I would be up out of bed at three or four in the morning, mm-hmm. praying and reading my Bible and putting in the very first in my day. Okay. Very first point in my day, and I still do it every single day that closet right there I go mm-hmm. and I sit and I praise and I worship and mm-hmm. I read mm-hmm. and do all those things so it was important mm-hmm. to me all the things that I was doing in there that I carried them outside that right. I just not walk out the door and forgot forget right. all the things I was doing to get me where I'm at now mentally right. you know spiritually mm-hmm. so that was very important to me but I paroled out to a place called the Good Samaritan it's a homeless shelter mm-hmm in uh, Corpus Christi mm-hmm. and 
that was just a, a bleak reminder because everybody there was actually homeless. Mm. They were using drugs. They were shooting dope. They were drinking. Oh. I was walking to the beach with these guys. You know, mm. they were drinking, doing all this, and for the first time in my life, I had no desire. I mean, zero desire mm-hmm. to take a drink. Wow. I could have had every any drug I wanted to right then and there. I could have mm-hmm. had any drink, and I, mm-hmm. I know God won't tempt you. Mm-hmm. So, but I almost felt like it was him saying you can have this life back right now if mm. you want mm. make a choice wow. and mm-hmm. for the first time in my life I didn't choose those things and I chose to follow him mm-hmm. when did you get married? I got married in 2013 mm-hmm. November I had met my wife at, so I eventually moved up to a halfway house mm-hmm. in Burleson, Texas and they had a women's house at the time, so mm-hmm. my wife ended up going there. Mm-hmm. So we were ha- halfway house love. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I like that. That's a movie. Yeah. <laughs> right. So we were the, actually the first couple to ever get married on that property. Wow. So the pastor of the mm-hmm. ministry and everything married us, mm. which, you know, great people that run that place, Rachel and Nolan, two of the best people that I've ever known that they took me in when I had nothing, nobody. Mm-hmm. Right. It, they remember when I got off the Greyhound to go there. Mm-hmm. Remember Rachel? She's very loud and yeah. You know, and she's like, "I didn't want to take you, <laughs> but God told me to." <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> but all that, and it just happened to be that Nolan, the mm-hmm. husband, got his hair cut by my wife's dad. Oh, my wife's dad has a barber shop, so that's how they found out about the place for her. Okay, that's the connection. There. <laughs> that's the connection. Mm-hmm. We got married on that property and moved out not too long after that. Mm-hmm. We got her son. One of her sons lived with us because mm-hmm. his dad had gone to prison. Okay. So that's when mm-hmm. first time I was a parent was to a teenager. Wow. I thought I was gonna kill him. <laughs> oh yes, yeah, so I can, I can imagine. <laughs> Usually when you're a parent, you have them from a very, you, you bring them home as a baby, <laughs> right. and the challenges are not that much. You have very minor challenges. Then as they grow, the challenges grow. But you jump in the, you jumped in the deep end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you jumped in the deep end. That's the challenge, the most hardest time, man. <laughs> My goodness. Well, it was a challenge. But, you know, nowadays, it was almost like I could see myself. Mm-hmm. Because he was he was very rebellious. Yeah. He wanted his dad. He yeah. didn't listen to the things I was saying. But I remember I was the same way. But I can look back now and mm-hmm. remember all the things that my parents did for me all of those years. Mm-hmm. I can remember everything they taught me and showed me. Mm-hmm. And now he can see that now too. Yeah. All the things that I was doing for him. Right. That he thanks me now. Yeah. You know, he's mm-hmm. 22 years old. Mm-hmm. He's he's growing up. He's learned some hard lessons. That mm-hmm. is, you know, you never give up. All you can do is mm-hmm. plant those seeds. Yes. Love them. Try to guide them in the right direction. But it's ultimately up to them. Yes. What direction they're gonna take, and mm-hmm. so it's, it's been great. Yeah. It seems like, you know, as kids, as teenagers, you just there's some things you can hear about, but that only your experience, kind of like really. The experience is, is still the best teacher, but having those seeds that you have, you know, that, that are planted, those things do 
create flowers later on, you know, so. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. So, so uh, your relationship with your wife, I'm sure it, 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 it could be, has there been any challenges, you know, doing your relationship that have tested you guys, you know, because you guys have similar life experiences? Right. Yeah, there, I mean, there's been challenges along the way. Mm -hmm. There's definitely some challenges along the way, and mm -hmm. I think having her son was one of our biggest challenges. Right. right. Because I had my ideas and ways of mm -hmm. how we would need to raise him and things like that, and she, right. we kind of butted heads on that, I guess you would say, on yes. mm -hmm. how, because I think she was partly kind of scared that if she was too hard on him or mm -hmm. things like that, that yes. she was going to push him away because mm -hmm. she hadn't had him most of her life, you know, because okay. she was out running, doing mm -hmm. that certain lifestyle as yeah. well. Mm -hmm. So I know that was, that was challenging besides me trying to orient myself with trying to figure out a teenager. Yes. <laughs> yes. Want you. But to be, to be able to come together with our fears, with our concerns, with our different ideas mm -hmm. and trying to figure that out right. as one was definitely uh, mm -hmm. interesting. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, I met you in Toastmasters and for everyone who doesn't know what Toastmasters is, it's a, sort of like a, because a program or a club that helps people to become confident public speakers. And it's a really great program. It's a great tool. No matter what your life experience is, your profession, no matter what you want to do, being able to become good at public speaking, it really makes you a well-rounded person. It makes you be able to express yourself in a confident way. And not that you needed to speak in front of crowds all the time. It's just a great program. And so when I heard your speech, you know, you right away, I, you became very, right away I, I knew what your message was. I know it's a message of Christ, of hope, and spreading that, you know, to people, um, something that has really made a difference in your life, brought you out of that darkness, obviously is something you want to share. So this, this program was a great thing for you. What, what, what was your, what, what did, you, did you decide to join Toastmaster? Well, it actually happened when I was doing prison ministry. Mm -hmm. So I, that was big on my heart that I wanted to go back in the prisons, help these guys do this and that. But I was I was good mm -hmm. at helping people one on one, mm -hmm. but I still was terrified of speaking in front of people. And mm -hmm. I was up on stage in Cofield, the biggest population wise biggest prison in Texas, mm -hmm. with a very well known uh, Christian pastor, author Jimmy Evans. Mm -hmm. um, I was up on stage as a volunteer, and he was speaking, and I just remember sitting, telling myself, just saying to myself, why can't I speak like him? Mm -hmm. I wasn't even listening to what he was saying anymore. It just got to the point where it's like, why why me? Mm -hmm. Why can't I do this? Why, right. why, why, why? why? Right. Almost to the point where it was like, why am I made like this? Mm -hmm. Back to old thinking, you yeah. know? And God kind of stopped me right there and said, Chad, look where you are. Mm -hmm. He said, you're on the same stage as he is. Mm. 
Mm. You know, he says, I'm not calling you to be Jimmy Evans. I'm not calling you to be Robert Morris or Tim Ross. Mm -hmm. I'm calling you to be Chad Morgan. Right. You know, and he said, he told me clearly that you will speak in front of people, mm -hmm. but you have to get over this fear. Right. He said, I'm not going to do it for you, mm. but I'll be with you in it. Mm. And I knew exactly what he wanted me to do because I know guys in prison that had gone through Toastmasters. Really? You know, I put up a little fight. I was like, God, I want to do this Toastmasters. I want to do this. Mm, mm. <laughs> but, and it was probably about another seven, eight months till I actually stepped foot inside of Toastmasters. Mm. So I, I tried to go in other prisons mm -hmm. and just get up there and speak and just go. Yes. And I was shaking, I was mm. nervous, I was yes. scared, oh, yes. but I was just thinking in my head, okay, just keep trying this, just mm -hmm. keep doing it. Right. Because I, I was fighting God on this Toastmaster thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can't do it. Right, right. And then I finally got to that place where I saw, oh, I can't do this. Yeah. It was like, I got to be obedient to what God is asking me to do because he's never failed me. Mm -hmm. Anytime I've been obedient, he's always been faithful. Right. And if he spoke those words, he's going to make it come to pass. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. that's what got me in the door to Toastmasters. When I heard your, when I heard you talking Toastmasters about being nervous, completely just overwhelmed with nerves and how much you would shake, and you even entered a speech contest. And in that speech contest, this is something you don't you don't have to enter a speech contest. You could just do the weekly speech and just face the the regular people. But when you did that. And the way you described that, when I heard that being new in Toastmasters, that, that, that is a thing that really, I want to say, moved me. It blew me away. It was the thing that touched me the most about that. Because everyone is afraid of, uh, of public speaking. That's the number one fear. I mean, it's just the number one fear. Right. And when you said you did that, despite you know being visibly shaken, it, it gave me... It just really did something for me in that program. It just it made it gave me the permission that that I needed to just go for it. I mean, it really. I mean, it really was the. It's still the most impactful thing to me, and the, just the willingness to be that vulnerable and do that. So I was impressed by that. What is your? So so thank you for that. Absolutely. You So what is your mission now? What is your mission going forward? What's the future for Chad? I definitely, my main goal right now is to start speaking more outside of Toastmasters. Mm -hmm. That's that's the number one thing that's kind of God's put on my heart right now. Like I can go to Toastmasters, mm -hmm. I can give speeches. They just kind of roll off now. Mm -hmm. I'm just I'm uncomfortable in that environment, and I have spoken outside of Toastmasters, but I need to do it more. Mm -hmm. There's different environments. Even going to a different Toastmasters club I've been starting to participate in a professional Toastmaster speaker club mm -hmm. just going to a different club mm -hmm. you feel that kind of the, the knots yes. a little bit in your stomach you're around all right. different people yes. people that have been doing this for years and years longer than you mm -hmm. those thoughts go through your head am I good enough can yes. I do this yeah and so I've always said and I think you've mentioned this before that whenever I, I, when I would write a speech or do a speech or anything I do, if, if mm -hmm. the thought came to my mind that I told myself I cannot do that, yes, 
I have to do. That's what I have to mm. do. Yes. In order to break down those barriers and get to where I want to go, mm-hmm. I have to get up there, whether it's making myself look like a fool, whether it goes with my speech or not, mm-hmm. I have to do it and I, pu- I have to push myself there. But I feel like I'm finally at that point where I'm not telling myself, nothing's saying don't go outside of Toastmasters. I don't have that mm-hmm. kind of bubble around me anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, this is to the point that I, I want to do this. I get to do this. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like it's go time. Yes. It's, it's who can we reach? Who can we affect? Mm-hmm. And so that, that's really where I'm, I'm looking to go from here in a speaking sense. Mm-hmm. I'm not really ever thinking about finances I'm not thinking about getting paid for speaking right not even on my realm I just want to get out there Mm -hmm. and tell people about Christ and what he's done in my life Mm -hmm. and if they're speaking paying speaking gigs down the road or things like that Mm -hmm. even better right right but at this point you know it's get my normal job done Mm -hmm. you know my Monday through Friday job Mm -hmm. work on speeches uh, I just got asked if I would run a men's Bible study hmm. for my wow. church, mm-hmm. so that's a that's a new adventure. That's great, and just the the level of confidence that Toastmasters has given me and built mm-hmm. up in me. There's really not any time anymore that I tell myself, "No, I can't do that." Right, just, I'm gonna do it. You want to run a men's yeah. Bible study? Okay. Wow. I might have to fail a few times, but you right. know what? I'll, I'll get there. That's a great attitude, you know. And so there's a, this is not the same as a public speech. You, you know, it's nobody, just me and you. But obviously when this is posted or, or, or uploaded, a lot of people are going to hear this. And I think you've said some things that are really going to tip the scales in people's lives. You, you, you never know what you say that's going to get to someone else right. and how they're going to hear it. They, you know, somebody might, you know. So with that, we're going to end with, we're going to end with this. I want you to just... What is your message to the person who is struggling, who is really, you know, maybe there's an opening there. What would you say to the person who is struggling in their life with anything, drugs or anything at all? Anything at all. I would, I would say look back at your life. Look back at the things that you have tried. You know, because you've probably been through the ringer. You've probably tried all the different options. you probably tried the things that I've talked about in this video that how can I do things differently? Mm-hmm. How can I change some things? How can I do this or that? And the outcome's going to be different. But the, really, the only thing that's ever going to change you completely is surrendering yourself to Jesus Christ mm-hmm. and being able to completely let go of those things. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't mean that you give your life to Christ and everything's going to be perfect right away and everything's going to change. Because right. that's not true. Even like my, my past... Uh, pastor used to tell me he was a porn addict he said Mm -hmm. when he gave his life to Christ he was now a saved porn addict Mm -hmm. he had to go through therapy he had Mm -hmm. to work at it he had to do some things because he had traumatic things in his childhood that Mm -hmm. led to those things Mm -hmm. so there's there's work to be done but there's people that will surround you find yourself in a good church Mm -hmm. a small group people that will love you people that you can be open to don't keep Mm -hmm. things to yourself Mm-hmm. So it doesn't help at all because that's helped me tremendously mm-hmm. opening up to people and having a family outside of my home that I can run to and confide in 
Mm-hmm. Because we pray for each other, we strengthen each other. You can't do this alone. Mm. God didn't design you to do this alone. Mm. Yes, He's going to be with you, but He's putting other people in your life, but you have to make yourself available to them. Mm. Because without accountability, you're going to fail. Mm-hmm. Accountability keeps you in line. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't yeah. show up to church for a few weeks in a row, people are going to be calling you. Right. And that's what that's what I needed in my life, and that's mm-hmm. what a lot of people need in your life. That structure, mm-hmm. that love, right. that edification, all those things that you know I ran away from when I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. I cling to them now, mm-hmm. and I know there's hope for anybody out there. And if you have a loved one that's is hurting, <laughs> that's a drug addict, mm-hmm. if you're on the other side of it. You know, my advice would be to to love them, to plant those seeds, never stop planting those seeds. Because mm-hmm. once they come come to their senses and realize those seeds are going to start to grow mm-hmm. and build up inside of them, they're going to remember all those things that you did for them. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean give them money. It doesn't mean give them the easy path. Mm-hmm. Right. But they have to know, you know, just let them know that you love them, that Jesus loves them, that there's hope. And there, I, there's nothing our God can't do, man. Well, thank you, Chad, for... I, I know that you've been sharing your story in Toastmasters and with other people, and it is your mission, but it's a part of your life that not everyone is open to sharing this, and, and people need to hear this, but not everyone is willing to do it. So it's that person who is willing to use their vulnerability and their life experience to touch other people. That's what we need. As human beings, we need that connection. So thank you so much for willing to take the time to do this. And um, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Absolutely, Craig. Thanks for having me. God bless you. Thank you. You too. Thank you very much for joining us. And join me again next time for the Searching for America. Hello, everyone. My name is Craig Sims, and you are listening to Searching for America. This podcast, every week, I'm looking at what's going on in America, what's happening to our country, where do we come from, and where do we find ourselves now? I'm sure I'm not the only one who thinks about, you know, what's happening in the world? What's going on? It's so many things to be happening happening uh, at the same time on a very serious scale. So many significant things in the Middle East, here in our country, um, a pol- politics, and socially. And certainly social media and technology has um, opened this wide, wide open for us here. So today I'm going to be talking to someone, as I will every week, because this show is about talking to people who have an investment in America, have a stake in the future. And today I'm talking to Ryan. He's, somewhat, he's someone I've chatted with occasionally, but right off the top of my head, I just knew that he was very uh, knowledgeable. He's on top of things, and he thinks deeply about things. So I just wanted to invite him in to talk about some issues. Ryan, thank you so much for coming in. You have been very gracious. Ryan has a couple of jobs, and he's busy. (laughs) Definitely. Yes, and uh, so Ryan, just off the top of your head, you know, just I want to start off in in a broad way, and then we'll get into more specifics. And I just want to get your thoughts and feelings about what's happening. Okay, well, what do you think about what, in America what's happening right now? So I think in America we serve, uh, or we're plagued by a, a few different things, as especially I'm younger than you, so in my generation of, you know, 20-somethings, my generation specifically is plagued with social media addiction, 
with technology addiction, with not knowing how to communicate with each other in an effective and meaningful way, whether we communicate in a very toxic or very scared way. We're always, you're supposed to be scared of, to say anything, even if it's, you know, even if it's only a little bit controversial, you're worried about, you know, what everybody's going to think. If you say this, you're going to lose your friends, you're going to lose your family. And that's how it makes you feel. I think in America, we suffer from a lot of things, but specifically my generation or the younger generation of Americans are very afraid of anything that has to do with what's outside of the most popular opinion. And it's interesting you say that because what what I'm struck by right away is that your awareness of this, your, your, your maturity, your understanding of this, although you're in the age that are totally engaged with the technology, you're born into the technology, so it's very natural for you, but at the same time you have this awareness that it's a problem. Well, I grew up with computers. I, I don't know a world without them, right? I'm not gonna say that I know what it would be like to live without computers, because I don't, because I, I, and I don't do that. I'm not some sort of troglodyte that sits in my room without a you know phone. I, I have a, an iPhone, an iPhone 12. It's, you know, just like everybody else's. I have a $2,000 gaming computer, just like everybody else my age. I love video games and I love computers and I love technology. But what I don't love is the culture that social media has created around the, you know, the conception of these medias. We take things like Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and we make them almost a pseudo God level of what they are in our lives. Like people my age love to take these things and it's all about external instant gratification and I'm not about that at all. Like I don't understand that. And can you see like, you know, that, that's really interesting because those things really draw your life, really completely control you, you know, it controls you in a sense. But, you know, social media, it, it has so many aspects to it. Now, or in, in your everyday life, do you see any other um, issues with social media, any other things that um, society speaking? Well, Craig, I don't know if you know this about me, but I have uh, almost a degree in psychology. So um, if you look at the statistics behind depression, anxiety, and things of that nature, you know, these uh, very important mental health issues. My generation is suffering at a rate almost double or triple on average from the generations prior. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the corollary science, but like for that, it has a lot to do with social media. You know, the instant gratification you get, you post a picture on Instagram and you get 20 likes and you think these 20 people really think I'm looking pretty today. Yeah. And that's instantly gratifying. So you don't know how, or I say the royal you, but we don't know how to look beyond things that take 20 seconds anymore. We don't know how to take, you know, take a step back and go, this might take a while for me to get something good out of it, but it's still good, even though right now it might not be amazing. Exactly. And, and that is, I didn't know that about you, that you almost have a degree. That's amazing. So I, I, we can kind of go some other areas as well. And so we talk, talked about social media. We talked about the, 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 the addiction of the technology. Um, let's let's branch out into politics. I mean, what is your general sense about how politics are going? Are you how do you, are you happy with the poli uh, with our government here in America? I mean, in okay. general. So I don't think the government in America is the issue. I think it's identity politics that's the issue, right? Everybody's pandering to a different identity, right? So like during the last presidential race, it was you know white racist dudes or everybody else. That's who you had to be with, right? Like or at least that's how it was painted in the media to me, mm -hmm. right? As a young person of not color, mm -hmm. right? I'm look like 
like I'd have people ask me, did you vote for Trump? And I'm like, that's none of your business for one. Mm-hmm. For two, it has nothing right. to do with my skin color, right? right? right. So it's why it's the you know this people versus this people that mm-hmm. person versus this person it's gender politics identity politics things that i don't think are healthy because i'm more for a coexistence where we're all one being you know human beings we're all one people collective one country the, you know the united states is there for a reason because we should all be united and not be you know it doesn't matter if i'm white or if i'm black or if i'm brown or if i'm yellow it doesn't matter like it doesn't matter that I'm not like I'm an immigrant it doesn't matter because we're all equal and the same in this place wow you just you really struck on something I'm really glad you brought this up I never saw this coming like from my point of view I'm you know being an older African-American male and I have a and I, I don't think I don't think that I'm a like a in a sense, I feel like my perspective is just the natural perspective. So I can only see it from my perspective. And I never think when I'm looking at something that is really from my perspective. Even though it is, I never look at it that way. I think like the average person is like, well, there's common senses, you know, and stuff like that. So you, as, as, you were saying from your perspective, people are, are pandering and that I w- often wonder what it looks like to you, you know. Um, can I say? Basically, you're saying that it looks like the, the people are pandering to to people uh, to people of color, and therefore that's what I'm seeing. Is, is am I correct? Or? Well, so I'm not saying in even necessarily people of color, but right, so right. it's it's painted as good guys and bad guys. Really, is what it's painted yeah. as, right? So, like during the last presidential race, for example, if you were a Trump supporter, you were in essence the bad guy. Right, like, oh, okay, and can. it's especially in my generation. Like, right. the majority of my generation is de- very democratic and very mm-hmm. socialist. Right, mm-hmm. that's just because of we're in debt more than we ever have been. We've, you know, mm-hmm. the country's in more debt. The people are in more debt. Mm-hmm. The you know student loan debt is higher than ever. So these socialist policies look really good to people who are my age and don't know anything about socialism. Mm-hmm. So, but the political left mm-hmm. is even they're not even that extreme. Mm-hmm. Some of these people, but some people are. But you see the extreme left and the extreme right mm-hmm. a lot in the media, right? So, do you think that they're painting? So, so you do? Do you think that the the the, the left, the liberals, are painting Trump as put, painting him in a certain light that may be inaccurate? And and also, what 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 would be the appeal of, of Trump? Let, let in general. I mean, I'm yeah. I understand what you're saying. So, yeah. first of all, I don't think they're painting him in a light that he's that would be necessarily incorrect uh-huh. right but right. they're only highlighting my like they're highlighting the worst parts mm-hmm. just like every other politician ever has but mm-hmm. instead of making it well oh this is his policy it's just if you believe what he believes you're bad mm-hmm. or if you like him you're bad right like it's not based on policy it's just based on like whatever he says and right i'll tell you this mm-hmm. i don't vote mm-hmm. i refuse to vote mm-hmm. and i've never voted i'm I'll just tell the audience I'm 24. I've never voted, right? And I refuse to vote because I'd like to come back to that. Well, and, but 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 no, but not right now. But yeah. but that's an interesting thing. But um, but continue on to your point because I really yeah. want to hear that. Go ahead. Yeah. So, as a 24 year old, I don't vote, and people will ask me why, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't want to like. First of all, there's no good and bad guy. There's mm-hmm. policy. If there's policies I agree on, and there's policies I don't agree on. If you don't hit 90 percent of my like, it's not. If it's mm-hmm. it has to be 90 10. Right, ninety percent right. of your policies yeah. have to align with mine mm-hmm. in order for you to get even like my support. Right. Because you know, obviously, we're not going to agree on everything with a politician. Right. Right. 
but I don't think choosing the lesser of whatever you like being like okay this person's like 60 40 that's a terrible like if I was betting yeah. on something and the odds were 60 or 40 percent for the other thing yeah a bunch of stuff that I don't like mm-hmm. why would I want that it right, right. Feel it's not enough of a love for there it's more of a just a, a last second any meeny miny mo thing versus I'm getting something I really want uh, yeah so now what, I, what I'm interested in going further in um, is because you know speaking you know if you're looking at a candidate or, or a politician you're often looking through the lens of the media per se in general but let's say let's take someone like Trump um, do you think that you know according to the media or through the media do you think he has been misrepresented or do you think we're getting do you th- I mean there's no way wait a hundred percent no but do you think we are getting in general what he really what he really is or 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 is he in some cases misrepresented or sort of you know put in a light that that's going to going to be negative to serve the media well and i think i think this is a complex question because i think Mm -hmm. for specifically like people in the public eye Mm -hmm. it depends on what news outlet you're looking at Mm -hmm. on which way you're going to get him painted right if you're looking at the more you know if you're looking at uh not fox news you're Mm -hmm. getting the more liberal side so you're going to get trump's a bad guy right Mm -hmm. if you're looking at fox you're going to get you know the the right side so he's the good guy right mm-hmm. it's really just like and this is one of the things that upsets me the most about like because mm-hmm. we talked about the internet before right yeah the internet is literally so powerful and it's so frustrating how terribly we use it with like social media and all these things that are almost a waste of our time right. when literally we could have pres- unbiased presidential candidate like candidate evaluations on the internet mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't paint them either way right because it, it right. all depends like during the presidential season it always depends on like what news outlet you're watching more of right, right. or just like during the pandemic the news you got was completely different depending on which news outlet you were watching exactly and I think that very biased and very clear biased opinion is a waste of time like these people like these news outlets are what are they good for if they're not going to give me accurate information or at least somewhat statistic mm-hmm. statistical information where they're you know numerically based and it's not right. they don't ever there's a reason the news very rarely shows you statistics that are really well rated and mm-hmm. well vetted statistics even during the pen you know the beginning of the pandemic a lot of the statistics ooh, excuse me the statistics we were getting from the news outlets mm-hmm. were either worded in ways that made people who don't know how to read statistics very scared or made them not afraid when it really should have been somewhere in the middle where it showed them the real facts and right. let them make the decision. Right. Now Fox News was uh, they, Fox News began because of their prior to Fox News uh, there was a complaint about liberal bias in the media in, in the mainstream media and that that pl- complaint had been around for a while. I was listening. I listened to a lot of conservative talk radio, and I listened and I watched some. And I watched like CNN, and I watched a, 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 like MSNBC. And so I got a I got a broad perspective. But coming, uh, there was a lot of talk about liberal bias for a while before before Fox News started. So like like as you say, basically it's not Fox versus everything else in your words you were saying that so, so basically Fox now they they began in order to I believe write the back to, to, to create a balance or to create to speak from the other side how, how well do you think that they are I mean are doing it at balancing it let's say if, if they're if they are the solution to the problem are they have they kind of delivered on being balanced well so I think again like I said I don't think a 
a different news outlet is mm -hmm. the balancing tool mm -hmm. that you need to use. We need to right. like either we need to balance it to where the news isn't just biased, right? Mm -hmm. Like where you make them use empirical data that's mm -hmm. not misleading mm -hmm. and you and you teach Americans how to really read statistics and like read into things on their own. Now do not, you think that's going to happen though? No. You know? Well mm -hmm. well and unfortunately no because at this point in the American education system specifically, we're in probably one of the worst places we've ever been in the last, since the beginning of time, basically. Because people are, with the internet, we're learning differently than we've ever had to, which is not a bad thing, but the problem is we're misusing the internet. And that's a good point. When you, when you bring, now you, we had the mainstream media, and then we had the alternative media outlets and stuff like that. We've got the talk radios, which aren't really, they're not, they aren't really news, they aren't really journalism, it's more commentary. So you, you, can, you have a broader, you can open up more when you have something that's more opinionated or, or more like opinion, then you have a, a broader thing to go with, you know. But if you add into that the internet, just the internet coming into the equation, now you have information. You have information coming from, it's like you've got, before whereas there was a handful of outlets that, that had more control, you have the internet coming in and bringing all of this information from, from several sources, like hundreds and thousands of sources. How do you, do you see that as a negative or a positive? So you asked the question earlier, like how do I think Fox News does a good job of balancing the, lib the more liberal side of uh, media, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The problem is that we don't, like as people, we don't explore both sides. Mm -hmm. Most people watch like most people who watch Fox News don't watch MSNBC or whichever, right. you know, whatever right. other news outlets are out mm -hmm. there and vice versa, right? The people who watch MSNBC don't watch Fox. Right. Right. And that's because they choose which outlet they agree with more mm -hmm. and then they watch that one. Mm -hmm. And so just like with the internet, it's the same thing because you can go on YouTube and find anybody you want talking about the liberal side. Right. And you can also find them talking about the conservative side. Mm -hmm. There's not very many places or people who are like smart enough, I hate to use the word intelligent enough, but intelligent enough to really be able to give, be able to read empirical data mm -hmm. and form an opinion based on empirical data. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people, especially nowadays, are either misinformed mm -hmm. or they don't even realize they're misinformed. They're just like, yeah. they're not missing. I don't want to say they're misinformed because they're, they're not reading anything. They're just like hearing the buzz and being like, oh, that's bad. You know right. what I mean? And, and when you say empirical data, and, and I know what you're saying, data sometimes can be, it takes more of a, um, more thought, it takes more processing. It's not a quick, it doesn't give a, a quick answer, like a, a black and white answer. It, it takes some thought. Do you think that, um, do you think that that's a, that's going to happen in, t in terms of people actually looking into that? Or what would be a solution to, 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 to make sure people are, are getting news that are more accurate? Well, first of all, I think we need to uh, be more, we need to have news people who are more intelligent mm -hmm. overall, more well-read, more well-studied. We, like, a journalism degree isn't what it should be. 
like in my opinion at least, right? Mm -hmm. So if you go to school for journalism, yeah. you should learn how to read hard data. You should almost be a scientist mm -hmm. to be a news writer, mm -hmm. at least for the real part of the news. I don't care about the cat stories and all that. Right, like, right, that's a different right. thing, right? Yeah, like that's yeah. probably what a journalism degree is covering, right? Is how to write cat stories about mm -hmm. the cat that got, got out of the tree by the fireman. Right. And that's great. Mm -hmm. But for the real parts of the news, mm -hmm. we need to have people who are very well read, very intelligent, and are very fact-based and driven, right? Writing those parts of the news. Mm -hmm. I don't care about the rest of it. I mean, feel-good stories are great. Tragedies are tragedies. We can write those stories, and they probably right. mostly write themselves, right? Yeah, because those are mostly narratives. You're reporting something that happened versus what you're saying is they need to be able to understand very well the data 